David Nutt is a scientist specialising in treating anxiety and depression, and also drug abuse. David starts by talking to Michael Barclay about alcohol dependence, and he goes on to examine the treatment of drug users. And presumably, anxiety is a driver for the other area, one of the other areas you've really specialised in, that's to say addiction to alcohol and drugs. Oh, undoubtedly. If you look at alcohol, probably the most common reason people become alcohol dependent is because they're using alcohol inappropriately to dampen down anxiety and stress. And then they use it repeatedly, they get tolerant to the effects, they use more, and then they become dependent. And when you were in America, I think you witnessed uh, the awful effects that alcohol can have. Well, yes. I, for two years, I ran the research ward at the National Institute of Health's uh, Alcohol Research Centre. And uh, I interviewed hundreds of people coming through to be detoxified and to be treated. And the reality was we had very, very poor treatments for them. And on average, becoming an alcohol-dependent person, an alcoholic, will take about 15 years off your life. It's a seriously dangerous illness. Which makes it rather surprising, uh, David, that you should have chosen Mario Lanza now with a song in praise of drinking. Yes, well, this is a remarkable song because it it sums up why people drink, particularly getting the pleasure. Alcohol is clearly the world's favourite drug and most people who use alcohol use it because it makes them feel good, helps them engage in social activities. Most people's romantic interactions start with alcohol, as in this song. But it's also really interesting because Mario Lanza, you know, the, the singer, you know, his life was blighted by alcohol, like so many other people's lives are blighted by alcohol. So there's a sort of double message in this song, that alcohol has a, a very, very positive effects. But, of course, it can also destroy people's lives. Drink, 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 two eyes that are bright As stars when they're shining on me Drink, 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 drink two lips that are red And sweet as the fruit on the tree Here's a hope that the salt runs with wine. Mario Lanza urging us to drink, drink, drink from the second act of Sigmund Romberg's operetta, The Student Prince. We heard the MGM Studio Orchestra in the soundtrack to the 1954 film. I suppose, David, you take completely the opposite uh, uh, opinion that you don't drink at all. Are you a teetotaler? Absolutely not. (laughs) Alcohol is my favourite drink. I I also have to confess that I'm a part owner of a wine bar with my daughter in Ely. (laughs) And and that really sums up the complexity of alcohol, doesn't it? 
Mm. It is most people's favourite drug. It's certainly my favourite drug. But it is a drug, and people can get into trouble with it. And uh, a lot of my research in the last 30, 40 years has been trying to work out how we can allow people to enjoy the pleasures of alcohol, but minimise the harms. Unfortunately, making uh, drug use illegal um, has not been uh, helped where, in countries where they have removed the illegality. Well, I would disagree with you there, Michael. I mean, Portugal, of course, is the famous example. For economic reasons, they decriminalised personal possession of all drugs. And in the 15 years following that decision, which meant that drug users were treated as people who were ill rather than people who were criminals, they reduced deaths from heroin by two-thirds. In our country, over the same time course, where we carried on criminalising people, we increased deaths by two-thirds. And just to be clear, you do not advocate drug use in any way or, or say that it is harmless. No, all drugs can be harmful. The problem is mm. that our policies are making the drugs more harmful. I mean, for instance, the cannabis policy of trying to eliminate cannabis use, which started in 1971. In those days, people were using herbal mixtures, which are low THC, high cannabidiol, relatively harmless cannabis. By reducing the ability of the importation from places like Morocco, we fed homegrown market, which distorted the production. So now we have skunk, high-strength THC, without the protective effects of the cannabidiol, which is the, uh, the, the component that has been grown out. The plant can only make a certain amount of uh, cannabinoids, so it's grown to make the THC, the stoning ingredient, which means you lose the protective ingredient. And then, of course, trying to eliminate skunk use, particularly by testing prisoners for skunk use, we saw the explosion of synthetic cannabinoids called spice. Now, these are more toxic even than skunk and way, way more toxic than cannabis. So in trying to eliminate cannabis use, all we've done is drive the market to a very much more harmful product. Ever the
Tessa Dunlop grew up in Kinlochranach and now presents programmes on BBC radio and television. Today we hear Tessa interviewing ex-members of the ATS, the Women's Auxiliary Service. The call is sounded and women fall in for service in their country's cause. Khaki uniform replaces the peacetime diversity of fashion, for in the Auxiliary Territorial Service, women undergo military training and undertake tasks which will relieve men for fighting. This is the object of women's enrolment in the services, to enable more men to be spared for the sterner duties of war. I don't think we ever thought about it being dangerous. We were firing at them, we weren't expecting them to fire back. <laughs> I think it made me who I am. I met people, I heard different things, I went all over the country. It's awful to say it was one of the best times of my life. I felt I was doing something useful, getting paid for it, which was brand new, and also there were masses of men, literally. The Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS, never enjoyed the glamorous associations of its naval and air force equivalents, the Wrens and the WAF, but it was the largest British military service for women. As shells are tested on the ranges. Stand by. Shot. Lock in. Bob. 80 years ago, in December 1941, conscription for women, initially between the ages of 20 to 30, was introduced. By war's end, 290,000 women had joined the ATS, performing a wide variety of jobs, including cooks, clerks, drivers, working on radar and as radio operatives and decoders. This is the story of five of those women who served their country. I'm not looking the same. doesn't matter. Do you know how good you look compared to most 97-year-olds? In six weeks' time, I'll be 98. Good God. The army girls in this programme are between 97 and 101 years old. These exceptional women look back at their formative years. Standards have not slipped. OK, wait there. You I'm wait there. You're bossy. You're very bossy and quite terrified. Wartime Britain insisted ATS recruits were non-combatants, forbidden to bear arms. They were support troops, auxiliaries, filling in behind the men. It all started in 1938, in September when my mother became W woman, oblique one, the first woman to join up. She <laughs> went down in her car to Taunton and came back, thrilled to bits, with an ATS band on her arm and a great smile on her lips. And she said, I've joined up. And uh, they've told me that I'm the first woman, so I'm woman one. Anne Carter was born in Burma, now Myanmar, in 1924, where her father was an Anglican missionary. By the 1930s, the family were back in England, the pillars of their local Somerset community. It is impossible in today's world to think of this concept of duty as we had it. But this duty was to serve your king and your country. And you just did. And how did you feel? And you were 14, 15 years old to see your mother arrive in 38 in full serge khaki uniform. I was terribly proud of her. It was that that made me sure that I wanted to 
later on when I was old enough, join up myself if, if the war was still going on. Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye. Cheerio, here I go on my way. Joan, you're the oldest woman in our programme, so congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Aubrey is 101 years old. Her father was a saddle and harness maker. The family lived in Soham in Cambridgeshire. I was rather spoiled, of course, being an only child. My mother was fairly... kept an eye on me, but my father was very lenient. But he'd lost two brothers in the First World War and couldn't conceive of his daughter going into the army. But when war was declared, I felt I just had to join up from a patriarchic point of view from a hope of getting more exciting life and meeting more people. Joan's parents weren't keen, but by December 1941, with conscription on the cards, Joan made up her mind. Like many girls, she reckoned that volunteering for a military service would give her a degree of control over her war work. To begin with, you're in a training camp in Northampton. Yes, what do you remember of that, Joan? <laughs> the shock <laughs> of finding myself among so many other girls, all from different types of homes, and having to sleep uh, 24 to a hut, I think. And the first night was dreadful because I, I wasn't used to sleeping with anybody. There were snorers and tooth grinders, people who had nightmares. I was kept awake most of the night. Give me a smile, I can keep all the while in my heart I was forever doing something, and my husband used to say, oh, for goodness sake, stop it, you know, sit down. But I have got a restless spirit. Daphne Attridge, or Williams as she was then, has always been restless. Early on, the prospect of the ATS appealed. Well, from the time I was 17, I wanted to go. But Why? Why, Daphne? Well, I wanted to get away from the village. I wanted to learn something. I wanted to meet people. And I've always been outgoing, and that's what I wanted to be. But Daphne's mother was opposed. My mother wouldn't let me. She wouldn't let you go into the ATS? She wouldn't let me go away at all. The same was true for her fiancé, Reg. Why didn't your mother and, and your boyfriend want you to serve? Can you explain? You know what? The men were probably jealous. They think you're going to meet somebody. That's probably it. Because they were quite young and people used to marry quite young in those days. Girls, this is urgent. Here's a real chance to help the fighting men finish off the enemy. If you're over 17 and a half and under 19, you can volunteer for the ATS. Kenneth Stephen is a poet who used to live in Dunkeld and he has been on this programme many times. Kenneth explores why people are drawn to poetry in times of crisis. Today, Kenneth looks at Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens, read by Jonathan Keeble. Wallace Stevens, one of the great American poets of the 20th century, wrote his poem Sunday Morning about many things. The nature of this life and the afterlife, faith in God and in beauty. 
It differs from the short, lyric bursts of poems more commonly written by others by that point of the mid-twentieth century and by Stevens himself. It's a literal and metaphysical exploration of a beautiful landscape that's divided into several parts and which lasts a number of pages. In one line, Wallace Stevens says, We live in an old chaos of the sun. Each of those words is simple, just one single syllable each. And yet it is possible to understand so many different things in that deceptively simple statement. Sunday Morning remains one of the most beautiful and healing poems I have ever encountered. Yet I don't pretend to comprehend it fully. For a time that troubled me. I felt a deep inadequacy. Why was I unable to understand it completely after so many readings? Then I realised that at some deep level I do comprehend. Yet what speaks to me, what is so powerful, is the language itself. Even if I don't fully understand the poem, the way the words are put together affects me deeply, has me coming back to hear them again and again. Each time I revisit the words, it is like returning to visit a dear, beloved place. The experience is never the same twice. I am given new colours, new scents, new sounds. Of course, I have changed since the last time. I am not quite the same person I was before. So I hear new things, and I hear old things in new ways. Supple and turbulent, a ring of men shall chant in orgy on a summer morn, their boisterous devotion to the sun, not as a god, but as a god might be, naked among them like a savage source. Their chant shall be a chant of paradise, out of their blood, returning to the sky, and in their chant shall enter, voice by voice, the windy lake wherein their lord delights, the trees like seraphim and echoing hills that choir among themselves long afterward. They shall know well the heavenly fellowship of men that perish and of summer mourn. And whence they came, and whither they shall go, the dew upon their feet shall manifest. She hears upon that water without sound a voice that cries, The tomb in Palestine is not the porch of spirits lingering. It is the grave of Jesus where he lay. We live in an old chaos of the sun, or old dependency of day and night, or island solitude, unsponsored, free of that wide water, inescapable. Deer walk upon our mountains, and the quail whistle about us their spontaneous cries. Sweet berries ripen in the wilderness, and, in the isolation of the sky, at evening, Casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. There is a
The drawn-out beauty of Mahalia Jackson's rendition of There is a Balm in Gilead, profoundly beautiful and restorative words from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. on down and lifts my soul again there is a bomb in Gilead that warms the weary soul there is a bomb in Gilead that makes the sinner whole There is a bomb in Gilead that warms the weary soul. There is a bomb in Gilead 
that makes the sinner whole. There is a bomb in Gilead, oh, there is, that makes the sinner whole.